0: You're so, like, chatty and comfortable with people. And I am. But there's something about being asked point blank, what do you do and how does it work? Especially when what you do is so complex and so nuanced to each individual relationship that just gets me kind of like, "Well, it's this. And then I feel like, I feel like Charlie Day in um, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia when he's got, like, the whiteboard and he's, like, crazy. I feel like that starts to happen. So... I was like, well, I haven't spoke for a long time. COVID kind of took care of that. And um, I had a baby and that kind of takes care of everything for a while. And I was like, well, you know, you own a business, Jessica, you're a big girl. And my supervisees are always like, you you have to teach because you have this way of talking that kind of takes some of the complexity and the mystery out of these things that we're trying to learn. And so I was like, well, I guess I can believe them and give it a go and we'll see how it how it feels? Yeah. yeah. Well,
1: like you said, especially with therapy, I mean, each individual person, I would imagine, is so dynamic in how you approach them and mm-hmm. how you're trying to work through their problem. Yeah. So to come on and try to put a finite point on it would be a little challenging.
0: Sure. Like, I mean, I don't know if you want me to save this. Are you recording? Oh, already? we're going. Yeah, oh, we're, good, we're going. You can great. Like, great. You're like, don't <laughs> rolling have to do start. It. Yeah. Um. Yeah. When patients initially come to me, generally, people are seeking therapy for in a very simplistic way, the same reason why right? they, they want to feel better. Something's missing from their life. And generally I use the phrase, yeah, you have some sense that it's meant to be more beautiful than this, right? Because that does really capture the um, kind of the medical aspect, like psychology in recent years has really wanted to be a science, right? So it's really interested in symptoms. But psychology, in my opinion, at its core is quite philosophical and spiritual. And so just that sense of like, it's supposed to be a little bit better than this, right? And for most people, yeah, it is. That's really true. And so when we start working together, I have a general kind of like well-used map, right? But the map doesn't reveal itself until we engage in the relationship. So it's really kind of special in that way. I have, I can, after we've met for about three to five sessions, I can get a framework. And obviously we talk about goals. It's really important in the work is that we have a shared, agreed upon goal. I have to also be on board with the goal, right? People can't come to me and say, well, you know, my goal is to, um, you know, be the richest person in town. I, I don't know if I can get on board with that goal because that goal might mean that you have to do some things or sacrifice some things that are not in line with my sense and what I know about what is actually well-being right now if you can convince me that it is then okay but I'm 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 really interested in a different type of growth if that makes sense so as we start working together things start to reveal themselves a little bit more right and oftentimes patients will have the experience in working with me I work long term I'm very upfront about that Um, I think that can be a little shocking um See, and you're, you're seeing me like go post a note to post a note in my mind. Um, but generally people around six months in, a year in, they start to say, gosh, I thought I knew what I was coming for when I started to see you and now I'm not so sure, but I'm really interested in whatever is coming, right? So there is always kind of this engaging with the goal in a way that I think other therapeutic modalities don't necessarily do, if that makes sense.
1: Does that occur a lot where someone's coming to you because things don't feel right and their goal of how to get to the place where it does feel right doesn't necessarily align with the direction you think that they should be taking?
0: It doesn't happen very often. I would say it's actually pretty rare because a lot of people want similar, you know, just universal things. Um, But sometimes people will want something like they want to be famous or they want something that seems like it 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 doesn't capture who they are and as i get to know them more it's like okay well you're telling me this is like to be the richest person in town for example this is the most important thing to you okay that means you're working an obscene amount of hours and you're really sacrificing the relationship with your family let's say you have children a partner etc and your body is giving you all sorts of signals from where i sit that this is not working out right they Migraines are something I'm always really on the lookout for in patients, because that is one of the psyche's favorite ways, in my opinion, of saying something's not quite right. Right. And so if I'm getting more and more information that says, gosh, this goal is actually to the detriment of all these other things that are necessary for a well-rounded, integrated light life, then I need to confront that. And we need to talk about that. And if we can't come to an agreement. And we need to talk about how I might not be the right therapist for you. I'm also, um, it's very important to me. Honesty is very important to me in the therapeutic relationship, but I'm also very dedicated to, I'm not going to lead you on, right? I'm I'm not the type of therapist that's going to make you feel good all the time. In fact, I'm actually probably going to make you feel bad quite often. Not because I want you to suffer and I'm a terrible sadist, but because most of us have a problem tolerating discomfort in a psychological or a feeling or affect sense. And that's something to be worked on. So it's not well, super common. Well, and I think that's
1: one of the almost backlashes against therapy from a lot of people who don't necessarily go through it is they think, oh, you're just going to someone to mm-hmm. vent and they're just going to agree with you and say, Yeah, mm-hmm. these problems are unique to you, you know, and you're really struggling and almost just give validation without trying to problem solve in the process. Absolutely. And I think people are afraid of that. And it's like, oh, well, then why go to therapy? You can just be fine. Just think that you're great. And then just that's all you're going to get from it.
0: Absolutely. And I think that is one of the things, um, if we're going to talk about psychodynamic therapy specifically, psychodynamic therapy is one of those therapies that is old, right? And there's all sorts of new, fancier, shiny therapies that have come out since psychodynamic therapy, the oldest treatment in the book Freudian all of that and people think well okay psychodynamic therapy is talk therapy talk therapy is just somebody listening to you maybe coddling you or they're not responsive at all and they're just kind of withholding blank slate is the term we use and they just repeatedly ask you how you're feeling like how is that going to help me right and there's a lot of reasons for this misconception right or they think we're they think that psychodynamic therapists are really obsessed with sex and sexuality and we're really interested in it don't get me wrong like definitely something that we want to talk about but that we have all these kind of primitive ways of conceptualizing people as if they're just as as, as if people are only in their drives right And Freud was very interested in drives, right? And he believed that there are certain drives that come up depending on the development of the person, right? So I have an almost three-year-old, right? And what we're dealing with right now is potty training. This is a very important drive, a very important thing that she needs to master, and it's quite complex, right? So people generally have a very minimal understanding of psychodynamic theory. And in my experience, the people who are most antagonistic towards psychodynamic theory theory don't know anything about it at all, actually. They have a really um, just negative preconceived notion of what it means. This is just a therapy where you're gonna see somebody for years and years and years, and nothing's gonna change, right? And I can respect that fear, but it's just not true.
1: How would you define psychodynamic therapy Mm -hmm. since you were so close to it?
0: yeah. So that's a great question. Psychodynamic therapy in its origins is developed by Freud, right? But since Freud, lots and lots and lots and lots of different psychologists have contributed to the theory and really made it into what it is today. Psychodynamic therapists love to disagree with one another. That's true. We love to debate. We're always interested in finding the truth. But the therapy in and of itself, I would say, is emotion focused. We're really interested in emotions or what we call affect, right? The affective experience of an emotion, right? Because an emotion is something you experience in your body and it has thoughts connected to it, memories connected to it. It's a really complex process. So that's one of the key features. One of the other ones is the unconscious. We do love the unconscious. We believe it's a thing and we believe it's very important. This idea that each of us contains various levels of knowing within our psyche, right? There's what I know declaratively and explicitly, right? I know that um, this water bottle is blue because I know that that's the color blue because I learned it and I can just declare that, right? But there's all sorts of other levels of consciousness, implicit, unknown, etc., and what sometimes we like to call the unthought known. And sometimes those things can get us into trouble because we might unconsciously feel some way or unconsciously be reenacting a pattern and That could be causing us real problems. Because the other thing we're really interested in in psychodynamic work is relationships. We want to know all about your relationships, not just your relationship with your mom, but it's really important and I'm not going to lie. We're also very interested in your relationships here and now and specifically the relationship you develop with me, which is what we call the transference and the counter-transference. So... It's not that we just spend, I just spend the whole time with my patients talking about, tell me about your mother, tell me about your father, tell me about your, you know, your earliest experiences. That's important, yes, but it is also very likely that there's going to come a time where I'm going to say, you know, you've been late for the past five sessions and I'm just wondering if you're feeling a little misunderstood by me because that's a passive aggressive behavior. Unconscious, right? Nobody consciously says, I'm pissed at my therapist, so I'm going to show up late. And they might. And if they can do that, that's great. That's a better level of insight. And we can talk about it. But generally, people don't know that. And so we have to talk about this in the here and now. Because what you're doing with me, you're probably doing with other people. And that probably happened a long time ago. And how do we put all those pieces together so that you can really know yourself, which is the ultimate goal, right? We really want to come to a deeper understanding of ourselves, greater comfort with our emotions, and Um, feeling more mastery in our relationships.
1: And with that greater understanding of yourself, that's when you can start to attack the rest of these problems. They're almost surface level problems that are stemming from the root cause of that.
0: Yeah. Some people, it's amazing how little we can know ourselves, right? It's amazing how much we think we know that we actually don't know. Um, It's
1: amazing how much we can lie to ourselves and just pass that off as the truth. Right.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, that is really true. Like when people are in a job, or they've committed so much time to going to school, making all these sacrifices, spending all this money, and then they work in the job for five years, and they have some little thought, I actually hate this. This is fucking dreadful. I can't imagine doing this for the rest of my life. And that thought is so overwhelming, right? Because of everything it's going to mean that they just bury it, right? But that feeling still exists in them. And this is when you have situations where people, not intentionally, not because they're terrible people, but where they start doing things at work that are not great for them or maybe the people they're serving and the job that they're doing and they just feel totally oblivious or they start getting sick all the time, right? I don't understand. I have these these headaches that happen all the time or these stomach aches, things like that. And if we can dig around and get to it, then we can maybe get to a place of them acknowledging, I hate my job and I'm so devastated. And I also feel betrayed because society told me go to college Get a job.
1: Check these boxes. Yeah. You'll be happy. Right.
0: So who am I supposed to be mad at? Right. You see how complex it gets. And the whole time we're kind of picking that apart, feeling that apart, really, and getting to know, Okay, well, what do you want to do? Right. What comes to mind? Some people just don't know how to dream anymore because that's also trained out of a lot of us. Like we don't know how to fantasize. We don't know how to have fun. We don't know how to play. And so we forget how to get in touch with, oh, this is what I want this is what I like. This is what I could see myself doing.
1: Does that follow along with the idea of almost getting back to your inner child
0: in some way? Yeah. In some ways, I don't, we don't always necessarily call it the inner child. This is the other thing I need to say. There's a lot of concepts (laughs) in um, psychology right now that feel new because they have new names. And in psychodynamic theory, we're like, no, we've been talking about that for a long time. But yeah, a, a connection with the you you used to be, right? And understanding that the you that was five existed throughout the continuum, right? What is that metaphysical psychology or something like that? Um, so yeah, we are interested in thinking about, well, what did you need then if there is a particular moment of pain that you're not getting now? But in regards to learning how to play again, yeah, it trying to remember okay what did you like when do you remember feeling joy right when did you remember feeling at ease things like that
1: do you think a lot of the challenges that people or your clients that are coming forward today are struggling with stems from some sort of trauma that they've experienced or a lack of unmet needs somewhere along their path in life or is it just so varied
0: I think it's really varied. I think it'd be really easy to jump on the everybody has trauma train, right? And I'm and by and no means and so many mean, people do. and so many people do right and I'm by no means minimizing that. But I think that there is something nuanced that's lost when we just say, well yeah, of course, I mean everybody has trauma, everybody has unmet needs. Yeah, that's really true, but I think we can get really specific, right? And I I'm always curious what each patient is going to teach me or show me about themselves, right? And if I go into it thinking, well, you know, it's just drama. Well, <laughs> I've already created—I've already put something in the space that I want them to fill for me, if that makes sense.
1: Is it hard not to slip into that mindset of almost trying to fit a patient into a template that you've previously experienced?
0: Yes, it's extremely hard. And it's extremely hard For a couple different reasons, but the one that sticks out the most to me and is the most true for me in my work is because I want to help people, right? I really want to have the answer. I really want to give people what they want. People want to feel better, and I want to help them. And so, in that anxiety, that desperateness to help, you can foreclose on the map, right? You can say, okay, this person is telling me that they have this and this and this, these symptoms, right? Then I need, I need to make the plan so that we can get there as quick as possible. Well, now we've we've created a whole different type of treatment, right? A treatment that's informed by my anxiety and my desire to help and not necessarily the patient's feedback, right?
1: Do you think that's where the idea of especially in regards to talk therapy where you're just falling into this validation trap stems from is because you obviously care about mm-hmm. the people that are coming to you and you want to help them and mm-hmm. some therapists might get tripped up in that and lean on affirming instead of pressing and trying to get to the root
0: yeah i think just like i said every question you ask me is going to be like here are like five different posts that's great right i'm like this one this one this one this one i think there's lots of different reasons why we have maybe more recently felt like therapy is much more um validation only or affirmation only right whatever you want to do whatever feels good to you versus well let's really dig around in that has happened for a couple of different reasons one being the therapist's anxiety right there's a huge demand mental health has become much less taboo thank god that's great but now people are busting down the doors of therapist's office and we're a little bit we can be a little bit overwhelmed especially when we're new right and you just want to be helpful. I think another reason is by nature, there is something, and there's research on this, and most senior therapists understand this. There is a certain personality that is attracted to therapy, and it tends to be the personality of someone who in their family of origin was a caretaker, was a placator, was the one keeping the peace, or wasn't able to have any sort of conflict with any authority. Right. Most of us can't really imagine having active conflict with our parents and having that go well for us. Right. So a lot of therapists just don't do conflict well because it's just kind of our temperament. Right. We didn't necessarily get into therapy because we thought we'd be doing all this like conflict management, which is actually what it ends up being a lot of. We thought we were going to become therapists and heal everybody, heal our own wounds, heal our family and everything was going to be great. But it doesn't turn out that way. So I think that's part of the reason, too. I also think that, like you were mentioning previously, a lot of people think that they want the truth. This is going to sound very, like, I don't know what the word is, but a lot of people think that they want to know and they want to change, and then they're going to have to come face-to-face with the other 50% of them that does not want that at all, that is very happy staying right here, doing exactly what I've been doing, and how dare you push me, or how dare you try to challenge me, because you must just not understand me, right? We've, we can sometimes feel like if we are uncomfortable that something bad is happening to us. But sometimes we are uncomfortable because something new is happening to us. And that distinction can sometimes get lost, especially in the beginning, right? And that's why in the beginning when I'm working with somebody, I'm not confronting you. We wanna build what we call rapport. And rapport can take a really long time because we can't do work if you don't think I'm safe, right? And likewise, I can't do work if I don't think you're safe. If I don't think you can handle some of my therapeutic confrontation, right, such as why you're late or why you interrupt me or how I've noticed that sometimes when I'm talking, you seem to not be paying attention, then the work is going to take a lot longer. If you're somebody who can take that kind of confrontation, well, we can get down to business right away, right, and start digging around in that.
1: Therapeutic confrontation is a great way to phrase that. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Right. I'm not interested in confronting people and being like, well, listen, right? We're not like wagging fingers at people being like, This, you know what, you're a piece of shit. Look at this thing you're doing. No, 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 no. It's much more of like, you know, I've noticed this thing. This happened a couple of times. Have you noticed this thing? Right. I'm gonna invite you into the the conversation. Let's talk about this. Right. And then I say, Well, no. No, I, I think that must just only be you. okay. I'll leave it alone for a while. But if it comes up again then I have to talk about how maybe it might not just be with me, right? Or then the patient will say, patients will sometimes say something like, oh, well, I think that only happens in here. And then 10 minutes later, they go on to tell me about an interpersonal interaction where they did the same thing to this other person, right? And so I'm building a little bit of a picture and I, I want to help the patient to see it.
1: Do you run into that wall frequently where they almost can't handle the truth? Because it seems like that's another aspect of therapy is you have this group of people who genuinely notices that there is a problem Mm -hmm. and wants to get better.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: But they feel that therapy is that step, that final step. Mm -hmm. That all I have to do is just go to therapy and I'm going to get better. Mm -hmm. I don't have to put any work outside of that. I don't have to change any practices, work on my behaviors. I just have to go to therapy and it's going to fix everything. I'm doing the thing.
0: I'm I'm a passive participant. I'm doing the thing. I'm healed. Yes. So what you're asking me is, does it happen frequently where people cannot appropriately engage in therapy? And the answer is yes. And But there's not it's not because people are bad, right? It's because people have different differing levels of resources, right? And when I say resources, I mean social support, financial resources, housing resources. It is very difficult to come to weekly psychodynamic therapy, dig around in all of your good and bad stuff and then go back to a home where you don't have support, right? It's very difficult to engage in work that's going to make you question everything about yourself and your relationships and have nobody outside of therapy to process it with, right? And then also sometimes people have created a way of being that was necessary for them, and it works for them, and it's just too risky, too scary to try a different way of being, right? Like, I'm trying to think of examples. It's hard for me to come up with examples on the spot, but you know, this can sometimes come up with individuals who are using substances to soothe themselves. I I, gen- I work a lot with substance abuse and often sometimes patients there will there will be an interaction in the therapy where I I have to say, you know, we've been working for a long time, but we seem really stuck here. And the patient ultimately acknowledges, yeah, I'm not, I'm not ready. I'm not ready to give this up. And that's okay. Right. What I'm more interested in is a patient being able to say, I'm not ready to give this up and I know why. Right. Instead of and like really knows why without externalizing blame and all this other stuff instead of, Oh, well, you know, I th- I think you're just not the right therapist for me or, yeah, it's just been too stressful for me lately, right? If a patient can say to me, yeah, you know, I don't think I'm ready because I've been coping with a substance for 10, 15 years. And as you've explained to me, I'm never going to be able to get the same feeling because it's a fabricated sense of well-being that substances generally give us, right? We can't really recreate that in our relationships. And that's just so scary to me. And when I get, when I approach that place of thinking about being without this substance, which has become kind of like a relationship, it's like a almost like an interpersonal object in their life, I'm just mortified, I'm terrified, and I'm just not ready. Okay, that's okay, but we need to maybe talk about a different type of therapy then that's not with me, right, or maybe how we can change the therapy. So those are just some examples of ways that people maybe aren't ready. Psychodynamic therapy is not for everybody. Um, I think it would be easy to try to act like it is, but you do have to have some level of support and resources to really engage in it well, right? Now, I do work with people all the time who are unhoused using substances. like I, I really try to cast as wide of a net. But I have had experiences where I'm like, you know, this just isn't the right one right now, right? First, we need some of this crisis intervention. We do need some more cognitive behavioral type work, and then you can appropriately gauge in this work.
1: Is it easier working with a client who is struggling with an issue in that regards where they have some substance that they are clearly masking with, as Mm -hmm. opposed to somebody who's just self-destructive and refuses to see it? Because at least if you you have this crutch of, oh, I drink every night, or I'm smoking weed, or I'm doing these things, you can't really run from that. I mean, it's in your face. You Mm -hmm. might be able to say, oh, it's not a crutch, but you recognize I am doing this every day to a certain extent. Maybe there is some underlying problem whereas mm-hmm. if you're just self-destructive you could say well it's the world's fault or a, oh i hate my job so kind of lash out it's there's not some underlying crack that i'm paving over
0: yeah i think i understand what you're asking essentially is it more difficult to work with somebody who has a blatant dysfunction
1: that's in your face that's in
0: their face and it's is there's physical evidence of it right they're using the substance versus working with somebody who thinks that there's nothing wrong with them and I think that depends on the therapist. Now, it sounds unpleasant when you just talk about it, right? Nobody really thinks it sounds fun to work with somebody who can't see their own hand in their own life, right? But there are therapists out there who who really do genuinely enjoy that, right? Because they understand that that individual what has become very popular. I'm hesitant to say this word because it's become so popular misuse, but is a little bit more narcissistic in their defenses right it's not me it's out there and therapists working with that type of individual understands that that person feels really terrible about themselves and they can access empathy for that person that's the other thing that's necessary for a working therapeutic relationship you have to like your patient you can't like them all the time right there's going to be times where you don't like them at all because that's that's authenticity in relationship. There's nobody that we're in relationship with that we like all the time. My daughter, I love her. Sometimes I hate her. She can be terrible, right? But then I love her again. That's the real that's real relationship. So, but to work well with somebody who is that defended, you have to have that ability to know, okay, this is really prickly, and they respond in this really prickly way. That doesn't feel very pleasant. But I can always, I, I've got one finger on this part of them that I know doesn't feel very great. And I think I can hang in there with them.
1: And that's the challenge is hanging in there, right? Yeah. Because otherwise you get burnt out and then no progress is made.
0: Yeah. There, in there's some more recent papers, readings, articles on this, but just about how important it is for therapists to feel some fulfillment in their work, right? There's no such thing as a benevolent therapist as far as I'm concerned. Um, We're not all altruistic beings. Um, We need to get some satisfaction from what we're doing. And unfortunately, or I think fortunately, we need that from our patients, right? We have to be aware of that, right? If I'm going through a season where it seems like everybody on my caseload is really struggling, I know that I need to be reaching out to my other therapist friends, right? To be like, so, because otherwise... I can start to push patients in ways that they're not ready to be pushed for because I want to feel better, right? It's coming back to that thing and how important it is to really know what's going on for me, right?
1: Yeah. You almost need to be self-aware in that way because you don't have somebody that's checking in on you in the same way that you are on your patients.
0: No, but you should. And this is kind of my other rant, Um, and anybody who's listening, who's engaging with the therapist, ask your therapist if they're in their own therapy or if they have been in their own therapy. And if they haven't, it's not that it's a deal breaker, but it's really so important because as I'm kind of describing, so much of what goes on in me is part of the relationship. And if what's going on in me is a mess or I'm unaware of it, it's going to show up in the relationship, right? So if there is a situation where I'm working with a patient And they're really frustrating me. I'm starting to what we call have negative transference with them. I just don't like them very much right now. But I'm not really aware of that. And I'm not really talking about that in my own therapy or with my friends. I can start to act that out in all sorts of ways, right? Withholding empathy, not really listening to them when they're talking, canceling session unnecessarily, all sorts of things. It can really sneak in. The patient experiences that whether it's conscious or unconscious they're impacted by that in some way. So, I think it's just so important for therapists to be in their own therapy and to be in to have experience going through the same waters that you're inviting your your patient to go into. Number 1, and number 2 to keep your own stuff in in your awareness so that you don't do any unnecessary harm.
1: Are most therapists doing that? Do they have their own therapist?
0: My experience is pretty mixed on that. I think it's changed. I think it's changed. um, But, you know, when I was in... I don't know for sure. I've met many a therapist who are not and have not ever been. And then I've met therapists that are, and they're just like, yeah, I'm going to be in therapy as long as I see patients, right? I happen to be one of those therapists. I feel like I'm always still learning, I'm still a living human being. Freud had believed that there was the possibility to be completely analyzed, right? And you kind of arrive at this place of full analysis and there's no more work to be done. And then he went on to discover that, no, that's not actually true and it can't happen. So why would I not want to be in my own therapy to care for myself, but also by proxy care for my patients in that way? Um I went to a graduate school, this is very rare, Um, that's why I say probably not, Um, but I went to a graduate school that required your own therapy, a lot of it. (laughs) And initially, when I started the program, I was super pissed, because graduate school is expensive, and super time-consuming, crazy amount of work, and then they want me to also go to therapy, and I have to pay for that, and I was livid about it. All a defense against my own vulnerability. Because here I am 11 years later and I'm still in therapy and I don't have any intention of stopping. But that's because of what I do for work. Now, some people might hear that and think, oh my gosh, well, what a crock, right? You're just going to work with people forever. And that sounds like a really good financial plan, right? Patients come in with you and they never leave. That's just how it is for me, right? And my own story and what I do for work and my interest in continuously getting to know myself, that's how I feel right now. So it's not like that for everybody.
1: Is it like that for your patients in some sense? Do you think that this is almost a lifelong path for them in Mm -hmm. terms of therapy or is there like a stopping point where, okay, you're good enough, we can take a break and see, maybe reassess again in six months?
0: Yeah, there, there are those points for patients and sometimes it's because there's a life event, right? Or sometimes, One of my favorite termination situations, I didn't come up with the word termination. I don't know which psychologist did, but it really is dreadful. But one of my favorite is when a patient's like, you know, I think I want to try out what I've learned, right? They kind of want to go, go it without you. And as long as I'm not feeling like there's maybe some passive aggressive unconscious thing going on, i really like to honor that and say, absolutely, go try it out. I'm here. And I always do make an effort to make space for previous patients so we can continue. And then they do. And sometimes they come back and sometimes they don't. And that's really great. Now, I do have patients who have experienced um, significant trauma in the form of relationships, generally starting in early childhood and being pervasive throughout. And they express generally that they would like to be in therapy forever because it just feels so. It's so empowering for them. There is so much for them to re-experience in an adaptive, healthy way. And it is so comforting for them to know that they have some place to go when their earliest experiences were of having nobody, right? And so those are just really different situations.
1: I would imagine for them specifically the idea of, of having that safe space and know that mm-hmm. where it's kind of blown out a lot too. Mm-hmm. But that place where they can go and it is this open environment would be extremely beneficial for them.
0: Yeah, absolutely. We really are hoping that patients internalize us, not because we're narcissistic, but that can happen. But we want patients to internalize us as a protective, supportive, available object in their lives, right? And so I'm always happy when I hear patients say things like, I had to do this hard thing and I thought of you, right? Especially when patients are setting boundaries and they're like, man, my mom, wanted me to do this. And then I heard your voice and I think, hell yeah, that's great. Use my voice while you need it. And we're going to work on building up yours and then you won't need it anymore. Right. Cause I'm not trying to keep patients dependent on me. I am trying to create a relationship that's transformative. And sometimes those two things can be confused.
1: Yeah, you want them to build the skills so that they almost don't need you. Yeah, absolutely. In that moment.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I I hope that eventually they get to the point where they don't need to use my voice to set the boundary. They can do it on their own. And they can also affirm the shit out of themselves, right? And maybe just briefly think about me and think like, gosh, I'm glad I can do this, right? Not the, oh, I really need her to do this.
1: The building boundaries is something that is weird in the sense that it is very prevalent in people talking about it today i feel like the idea of oh yeah set boundaries everybody talks about that i don't know if they actually use it in practice it seems like there's (laughs) there are these weird relationship dynamics that still permeate through that yeah where you just get run through and then it's oh well i set boundaries but did you enforce the boundaries did you actually was it a hard line for you or where you just let them go
0: it, but like, did you did you try? Yeah, or did you just talk about the boundary? or you just
1: like the idea of saying,, oh, I have yeah. boundaries. Yeah, I you set just these like things. threw
0: boundary dust at it. yeah, and nothing happened. yeah. and i I think that kind of likens back to what you were saying about how sometimes people can unconsciously engage in therapy where they say, "Well, I'm going to therapy. See, I'm doing everything I can do, right. And this shows up in the therapy room occasionally where I have to have conversations with people, therapeutic confrontation, where I say, Yeah, you know, we've been talking about this particular thing that you're struggling with for a really long time, right? We've been talking about setting boundaries with your mom or quitting this job that you have identified for months that you really hate. And we just don't seem to get anywhere. And I'm wondering if you know what that's about. And and then we might talk about it. But sometimes I do just have to say, well, it seems like you might be coming in here blowing off steam, releasing that pressure, the discomfort, right? Right. And then you can go along your merry way and you can still tolerate the job. I wonder what would happen if we didn't release that pressure, if you would have to do something, right? And boundaries are kind of like that too. You can talk to our friends about how we're going to set boundaries, right? And then we really feel like we're doing something. And in the in the beginning, that's super important, right? It's really important to have support, especially when you're having to set boundaries with somebody who has been really scary to you or reminds you of somebody who has been really scary and dangerous to you. But a But then eventually you're going to wear that stage out, right, where you're just like talking to your friends all the time about setting boundaries and they're getting a little wore out. Like, when are you going to, when are you going to, like, as far as I can see, nothing has changed, right? And then what needs to happen is a bunch of mini steps, right? So somebody is thinking about, I really want to set a boundary with this person And they cognitively know, okay, I need to do it. This is why I need to do it. This is how I'm going to do it. All of that sounds great. But in the moment, something takes over in their physical body, right? They lose their mind and they're all unconscious, right? And so then we have to break that down, kind of slice it and really understand what is happening in in each of these moments. And this is when I do invoke the power of fantasy and is like, okay, let's imagine, right? That, you're, that I'm your mother or something like that, right? What do you imagine saying? And then they can kind of work through that. But it is really a, an acknowledgement that you can do all of the work up front and you can get all of the support and those things are good and they're necessary. And it doesn't mean that it's not going to still be uncomfortable. People can be attached to this idea that they're going to have an epiphany or they're going to stumble on the perfect thing to say or the perfect kind of knowledge nugget and suddenly the fear is just going to be gone. That is very rare. I'm not saying that that doesn't happen. Obviously, we've all heard of people who have big epiphanies, right? Or moments of transformation. That is really excellent. And the majority of the time, it's not like that. The transformation is actually doing the thing, right? And seeing yourself through and having a different response.
1: It's an alluring idea, though. Yeah. It is just going to fall in your lap. Life is going to give you one. and then Absolutely. Everything will fall into place after that.
0: Absolutely. Sounds great sign me up. Yeah, right. If you figure it out, if you find that thing, tell me, please.
1: Is is there a difference in people's willingness to face a problem if it's a relationship versus if it's related to work? So if I hate my job and I'm struggling with it, am I more willing to actually make a change in that regard as opposed to if it's a relationship dynamic, like me and my mom are going at it?
0: I think it really depends because work is a relationship. This is why so many people recreate a dynamic with work that is familiar in another relationship, right? So, so many people right now um, feel burnt out in their job, right? Burnout has also become a really big thing. And when we start thinking about work as a relationship, it's like, when else have you been in a relationship with somebody or something that seemed happy to take everything you had, right? Right and wasn't really aware of you, right? And then people can really start to realize, oh, well, I have felt this way in relationships. So I think work is a relationship. I don't think one is easier or more difficult for the person. It depends on that person, right? Some people are really comfortable uh, setting boundaries or navigating a certain type of person, but then another type of person or situation is really um, activating for them or what people like to say, triggering,
1: well, I guess in theory, it's all relative, right? Because you still have to put in work to get out of mm-hmm. the situation, mm-hmm. regardless of if it's a relationship or if it's a physical work environment that you're in. Yeah. You're still going to have to enact a course of action to get through that.
0: Right. And it's going to involve discomfort. It's going to not feel good. Just because something doesn't feel good doesn't mean that it's not worth doing.
1: But people don't like doing things that don't feel good. That's the hard part. Right.
0: Right. We don't. And it's And that is something that most of us share, right? We don't want to do things that feel good. Absolutely.
1: Overcoming that, I think, is the... If there was a secret to living a productive life by whatever you define that as, I think it's embracing that struggle. I think part of that is in there. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, I think it is being able to discern, okay, is this discomfort, and this is a big part of working psychodynamically, is this feeling, right? Does it have something to tell me? Do I understand what this is connected to, right? So if I'm feeling really uncomfortable about leaving a job, if I can be with that feeling, instead of going to therapy and just venting about how much I hate my job, right? splitting, that's what people do. They'll make something all good or all bad, villainize it. Instead of doing that and really focusing on the feeling of what gets in the way, since it's clear that I don't particularly enjoy this relationship, the feeling is usually related to um, fear, anger, grief, right? And those things are generally pretty uncomfortable. Most of us are like, yeah, those are those are bad feelings. We don't like those. There's no such thing as good and bad feelings, but those are feelings that most of us say, yeah, I don't I don't really love that. Okay, well, if all feelings have an adaptive function, which I believe they do, right? Anger helps us know that there's been some sort of violation that we need to set a boundary, right? Sadness lets us know that we need to grieve. We need to have people close and comfort us. Fear lets us know that we need to feel safe. There's something that we're not feeling safe about and we really need safety. So if I can spend time in the feelings that come up when I think about quitting said job that I hate and I realize, gosh, I just feel so much grief or people feel fear because they're worried about what people are gonna think of them, right? I'm going to let all these people down. Everybody's going to think I'm a quitter, right? We can start to really get to know more of the core and start to confront some of those things. Yeah, is it true that everybody's going to think that you're a quitter? Is it true that you're going to think you're a quitter? When really what you're doing is more difficult, like quitting is more difficult than staying for you. And you know that. And how do we figure out how to make that enough for you?
1: And it, sometimes it's a challenge just deciphering the emotion past face value and figuring out, okay, like for me, my my challenge is always when it comes to difficult things. Mm-hmm. It's, am I doing this for the sake of it being difficult or is it difficult and I need to progress through that because what's on the other side is something that I'm working toward. Mm-hmm. And I feel like it's easy personally to slip into the trap of just doing hard things for the sake of doing hard things. Sure. Not necessarily in the pursuit of some greater goal past that.
0: Sure. Some of us can be prone to masochistic behavior, where we want to be the best at suffering. And we think that if the thing is hard, that gives us a real ego boost. That's the validation. It's just it being hard. Yeah, this thing is hard. Not everybody can do this hard thing. And I feel really good about myself. Now, there are some things in that that are not bad, right? I think that sometimes about I'm seeing that you ran a marathon. I have zero interest in that. Oh, I was actually that. thinking about that as yeah. I was bringing that up. <laughs> I, I would never do that because I abhor running. I hate it. There's nothing about it that I particularly enjoy. Now, if I decided I needed to run a marathon because I wanted to prove to myself that I could do it, I really have to examine that, right? What is this really about? It's because now we're getting into a, like, are we suffering for the sake of suffering? Like, what is the real reason? Now, For lots of other people, it means all sorts of other things. And I think that's really wonderful and beautiful. But I know for me, if I tell you, if anybody listening ever hears me say that I'm going to run a marathon, you want to really ask me what's going on, because there's some other motivation going on and it might not be serving me.
1: And that's exactly what that was for me, was this masochistic pursuit of something difficult, almost in a way to run away from life in Mm -hmm. some regard. Mm -hmm. Like I ran that marathon. I had never trained. I think before that I had run six miles was my max. Wow. And I did that because life was difficult at that point in time. So I just woke up one day and didn't want to deal with life. So Mm -hmm. I just started running Forrest Gump style and didn't stop. And then eventually I realized, oh, this is just going to be a marathon because in enduring this pain, I can't think about anything else. Mm -hmm. I physically can't Mm -hmm. because my body is so worn out, even at mile eight. And so I'm just going to keep going because the second I stop, I have to go back and I have to face life and right. deal with whatever caused me to go down this path in the first place. Right.
0: This discomfort is distracting. It's distracting. It's probably a defense,
1: and it's seductive in that nature. Yes. Because it's all consumed, especially something like that where there is physical pain associated yes. with it, and that pain is so overpowering, you don't get to think about right what you did or what you're going to do. You're just present in that moment.
0: Yeah. At some point, your body is saying, what the hell are you doing? Yeah, well, you're trying to kill me. What are <laughs> we doing here? Can't we just go home and sit down and eat some food? Like, why? There's no predators. Why are we running? Right.
1: That, I think, is... That is a challenge, working through that idea mm-hmm. and trying to figure out, okay, is this... Again, is this something that I'm working through or running towards in a negative connotation?
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is... It's... I mean, that is the crux of some of the things that we explore in psychodynamic therapy is this thing, right? Is this defense that maybe that all very likely in the beginning started out as a good thing to help you, right? Most individuals who um, is a classic defense of projection, right? Being confused about what is happening in you as coming in from someone outside, right? Most of us started having defenses like that at a very young age because we were trying to mind read, because we weren't getting information that we needed from the people in our lives to help us feel clear about what was happening, right? Because a lot of people, a lot of children don't get to know what's going on in their parents' mind because they don't share it with them, right? Another one is introjection. That's another defense where we take on, we, we unconsciously decide that what is happening outside is actually coming from in us, right? So if I'm a child and I come home from school and my parent is withdrawn or yells at me or is cold towards me, I don't have the ability, depending on how young I am, to understand, well, you know, mom, like maybe mom or dad had a bad day or maybe mom and dad have a drinking problem or anything that has nothing to do with me and everything to do with them. The child only knows them and so they think I'm bad mom's upset with me dad's upset with me i must have done something because that feeling of being the one who has caused the situation feels better than the out of control feeling of other people are predictable and it might have nothing to do with me right so in the spirit of defenses they they're not these terrible monstrous things and we're not trying to rip defenses from people that's something i do caution um some of my supervisees about like you can you can be really gun ho about like man this patient has all these defenses and I'm gonna get them no 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 because <laughs> those de- those defenses are holding the patient up right they are necessary for them to exist in their life we want to replace those with other things that are gonna work more adaptively for them right so remembering that some of these things like the desire to um, self punish right or suffer unnecessarily is coming from something that at one point was adaptive it's not just because you're born that way
1: is that one aspect of psychodynamic psychodynamic therapy that is a focus is just the relation to the childhood experiences not so much where we are presently but what has happened in the past that has gotten us to this point
0: oh absolutely yeah we're always trying to make connection between um your current relationships your relationship with yourself your relationship with your therapist and your relationship with your past right so it's patients will inevitably experience me as somebody in their past, right? And I want to be ready for that and help them make that connection because that's not true. I am not that person. They're projecting onto me this other that isn't even in the room but exists within them.
1: That's an interesting idea. In terms of an authority authority figure mm-hmm. or just someone that maybe they can relate to and they're projecting that onto you so that they can build a rapport?
0: It's widely unconscious, right? So it depends on the patient. It's not until I reveal it to the patient, right? So like, oh, let's, I'm trying to think of an example. So a patient might come in, I know, a patient is going through a particular, particularly diff, difficult time, and it really is. They're having to navigate a bunch of challenges, and, you know, it'd be really easy to be dismissive and just say, like, well, this is life, right? These are things that happen in life, and you have to deal with them. And the patient becomes kind of in our relationship very childlike is just circling around despite my efforts to go a little bit deeper they just keep saying i don't know what to do i don't know what to do please tell me what to do please tell me what to do and if i know enough about the patient's history i can make some sort of reflection possible interpretation about it seems like you're experiencing me as somebody who can solve your problems for you right and they might say, well, yeah, don't you have the answers? You're the therapist. And I'm like, yes, I am your therapist, but I am not the person who solves your problems. Right. I, but I'm curious why you're experiencing me in that way. And if you've experienced other people in that way. Right. And then a patient can sometimes say, yeah, you know, when I did have problems, I, I did just go to mom, dad, aunt, uncle, whoever, and they would just take care of it. Right. So I, I really don't know what to do. OK, now we're on to something. OK, because if I just jump in and solve your problems for you, well, that's not really working out for you in the long run, is it? Right. Now, that's not to say that I'm withholding. And if there is some sort of suggestion that I think might be helpful, I will offer that. But not until I've figured out what's going on. Right. Just like when patients come in and they say. Well, or they want to ask, right, when patients want to know things about me, this is the self-disclosure thing I was talking about, because I don't share a lot about myself. Not because I want to be mysterious, though it's a good look, but that's not what I'm going for. Eventually patients are going to say, well, what did you do all weekend? Right? Now, I could just answer that, just say, well, I went to the river and I got sunburnt and I chased my daughter around, whatever. I want to know, why are you asking that question and why now? Not because they're doing anything wrong, but what's going on? And usually patients are asking that question because they're feeling a little uncomfortable with how unbalanced the relationship is. Suddenly I know a lot about them and they know nothing about me. And it's weird in that way, right? And now we can talk about that. And then they don't have to ask me what I did every weekend, right? Because they realize, oh, this is coming from a place of feeling a little like I'm really vulnerable. Yeah, it turns out you are. I know a lot about you and you don't know anything about me. What is that like, right? To use a therapist phrase or how does that feel, right? Well, it's a little vulnerable, but I guess it's okay because I think I trust you. Excellent. Awesome. You're always welcome to ask me questions. I might not always answer, but you can ask me anything. But patients learn pretty quick they ask me questions i'm going to be like happy to answer the question but you got to tell me why right
1: does that i mean i guess it's almost a power dynamic in some way right because you are hearing essentially everything about them mm-hmm. or all the things that are most important to them in some way and there's almost this thin veil between you and them where it, it only permeates yes. in that direction
0: yes and i think that is the other thing to circle back that contributes to why some times Therapists can fall into the place of validation only, warm, friendly therapist only space, is because they are uncomfortable with the reality that there is a power dynamic. That you are the authority, you are the therapist, you are not equals, right? A lot of us, there, a lot of us who are therapists, we're also very social justice oriented. That's something that's really important to us. And so, this idea of authority and power can be something that we just don't really like, right? But it's not a bad thing. It's an, it's necessary for the relationship. I think it's very important to explain when appropriate that I'm not your friend. Right. And sometimes patients will do that where they're like, well, maybe we could get coffee sometime. That's a, that's a really nice thought. And I'm glad you like me enough to do that. And let's talk about how this relationship is not like a friendship and what sort of anxieties are coming up there. Cause if I'm your friend, I'm not your therapist and I can't help you, right? If I'm solving your problems for you, like your mother, I'm just colluding with you. I'm not helping you. Right. I might circle back to the goals and say, well, I think I remember you saying that one of the things you were interested in was feeling more like an adult. Right. Is this in line with those goals? Right. Patients will eventually get ticked off that I'm listening so well. Right. They're like, well, I did say that, I guess, but this is a different situation. And then we can have a chuckle about it.
1: Does that relationship structure ever backfire or would it be more beneficial to have a more reciprocal relationship with a patient or it's better because you can maintain that dynamic of you no know, we're here to address your problems mm-hmm. and we're not here to be best friends mm-hmm. we're here to work through what's bothering you
0: yeah there i think it, it can and i hope i'm addressing your question so stop me if i'm not but the you can be too rigid right So, and this is something that people have complained about psychodynamic therapy in the past, right? This blank slate, sitting on the chase lounge beside you, not even looking at you, unfeeling other, right? That's not going to work, okay? You do have to be a real person. So when therapists are learning how to do therapy, they've got to figure out for them what is right for me, right? Now, Being a real person means maybe when a patient says, how was your weekend? I say, it was good. Got some sun, right? And I don't immediately just go, well, why are you asking me that, right? That's kind of crazy. (laughs) Just kind of being a crazy person now. It might also mean that if I do have to take more time off than I normally would because there's some sort of family emergency going on in my life, I share that. Not the gory details, right? But I just say, there is something going on in my life that's causing me to be not as consistent as I normally am. And I wanted you to know, right? And then we can talk about that. So yes, I do think that being too rigid, too withholding, too going too hard for that blank slate look is not good for the relationship. But on the other end, being too self-disclosing, too colluding, well, now we're not doing therapy anymore. We're doing something else.
1: We're just two friends hanging out.
0: Yeah, we're just two friends hanging out. And I'm probably unconsciously colluding with all the things you're trying to change.
1: And this approach, is it more unique to psychodynamic therapy or just therapy in general? This idea of that one-way relationship in some regard?
0: I think it's it's characteristic of therapy in general. And I think it's necessary for other modalities. Um, When when I hear about therapy or services that are like therapy and they involve this real blurry um, relationship, I get really nervous. I get nervous for the person who's receiving those services because initially that can feel really good, but then it doesn't because you're not getting what you're actually looking for, right?
1: Well, it's harder to... I would imagine it's harder to really address the problem if you take on this best friend role. Mm Because, yeah, your best friends are people who you can go to and vent and talk about an issue and they'll be there to help you. But I don't think that structure is the same as you would want with a therapist. Mm -hmm. Because you're there, you're almost feeding this outside person this information and then they get this objective look Mm -hmm. and they can make a real real plan of attack for how we're going to get through this your friends are almost too close to it Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways yeah and they've got their own things and their own biases and all this other stuff it just it wouldn't work if you blended those
0: two it doesn't work because therapy is not a friendship it's just a totally different relationship
1: and i would imagine it'd be more draining on you on top of how draining it already is where now you have to fill this alternate role of not just your therapist i'm your friend and I got to balance that.
0: Yeah, it just gets really messy really quick, right? We get conflicts of interest stuff that can be really problematic. Like if I'm working with somebody, this would this would be pretty gregarious. But if I'm working with somebody and they are going through a divorce, right? And I happen to be going through a divorce. And I share with said patient that I really understand how they're feeling because I'm also going through a divorce, right? Something has something insidious has entered the relationship at that point in my opinion right because now i am taking up room in the patient's experience right the patient's not coming to therapy to hear about my divorce and how similar it is to theirs they're coming to therapy so that they can process their divorce lean into what comes next for them and get support right that might also fill this particular patient with um doubt well, if you're going through a divorce, also, how can you help me? Right? Patients can become really hypervigilant to any sort of emotional turmoil going on in the therapist because some patients are just very aware of when their therapist feels a little distant. And that's a great thing. I love working with patients like that. But in this situation, you don't know how that is going to impact the patient unless you're really asking about it. Right? And so if I do disclose something, if I say, for example, and I did have to do this, I'm gone more than I usually am because I'm dealing with a family emergency. What's that like for you? How are you feeling about what I've shared? And then we can talk about that. And then I, I can know, right? And, and some patients are like, I'm really glad you told me. I thought you hated me, right? They projected onto me. Or other patients are like, okay, um, thanks for letting me know. Okay. Now I know that patient doesn't want to talk more about it. And that's fine. That's okay. They don't need to know every time something new has happened in my family emergency. How do you feel like
1: being in this field has affected your relationships on a personal level?
0: I think it's transformed my relationships. Man, that's such a big question. I grew up in rural Wisconsin agriculture community, farming community, blue collar community, um, amazing people, hard workers. Emotions are not our thing. They're just not. And going to graduate school, pursuing becoming a psychologist, though very daunting and was very difficult and a lot of um, people in my life didn't understand because it's such an expensive and a long process. um, But it has just changed who I am in such a beautiful way. And that seems especially true to me now that I'm a parent, right? And I'm getting this opportunity to watch some of the theory unfold in my, my own life, right? All children of psychologists are subject to this, right? They're like our own little case studies. <laughs> Not that we run experiments on them, but, you know, it can be really great to be like, oh, yeah, this is attachment, Oh yeah, my daughter's upset with me because I was gone. And it's important for me to not try to get her to calm down right away. She needs to be upset. And then she's, then we're going to reconnect. And sure enough, that's what, and th- those moments can feel really good. So I just think, I, I know, I don't think, I know that the journey to becoming a psychologist and my continued journey to to learn more and more about psychodynamic therapy just makes me a better person, a better friend a better partner, a better parent, a better employer, better in every single way. My relationships now are incredible. And I just can't imagine, I can't imagine having not made this choice, even though there were numerous times where I cursed <laughs> the gods for making me want to be a psychologist. I'm i am very happy that I made that choice.
1: Did you know from a young age that this was what you wanted to do?
0: Yeah, because I am one of those therapists that was a therapist in their family of origin and also with my peer group. Um, I'm the oldest. I'm the only girl. It was a a good role for me. There were things that happened in my family that kind of resulted in that role, too. It's not because my parents were trying to take advantage of me. Um, But I wanted to help people from a young age, and I wanted to know more about myself, and I wanted... I didn't know this at the time, but I really wanted to get out of Wisconsin (laughs) from a town of 200. And it seemed like this was the way. And I never, I never questioned it until I got into graduate school. And then I had to do like the really hard, invasive, you know, in graduate school, they like take you apart and put you back together. It's just so painful. But that was the only time I questioned it. And then when I graduated, It did take me a little bit to come back to psychodynamic theory because it has fallen out of popularity because of insurance companies and this desire for quick change, efficacy, all of those things. And so I did practice um, in a different way. I tried a bunch of different modalities. I hated them. I'm bad at them because I don't I'm not. I worked in a restaurant for 10 years and like as a server and a bartender and I could never sell what I didn't like I couldn't do it didn't matter what the incentive was I have like a special and it'd be like some fish and the manager would be like whoever sells the most special gets a hundred dollars didn't matter if I didn't like it I couldn't sell it and that was the same for me after I graduated and I started practicing on my own and it was like I tried these things and I was like this doesn't work for me I can't sell it. So psychodynamic therapy has worked for me. That doesn't mean that it's going to work for everybody. It doesn't mean that it's for everybody. But I do feel strongly that it has something for everyone.
1: Do you think that that modality has kind of fallen out of, out of favor just because it's been around so long that that almost works against it and people want to jump on that new thing and find a new approach?
0: I think it's fallen out of favor because people want change now right? People want... Understandably. Yeah. we And most of us, we know that, right? As human beings, we want discomfort to be minimal. We want to optimize pleasure. We want things to be quick and easy, right? And we do have to grieve. And there does come a time when I'm working with patients where they're really kind of coming into, oh, this is going to take a while, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And that's not fair. You know, a lot of times, especially because I do work with a lot of trauma it's not fair that you have to come and see me every week to access the joy in your life right and we do have to grieve that right so i think people they they want to feel better quickly as they should the other thing that has happened is psychology really 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 wants to be a hard science wants it real bad and it's just not in my opinion others would disagree with this because to do research you have to be able to manipulate the variables and ethically we can't do that right so we can't take children away from their parents and like put them in all these terrible situations we can't shock people anymore way back before we had ethics they did stuff like that and we got some good research out of it but it's not ethical so it's very hard to research it the phenomenolo- the phenomenology of what happens in the therapeutic re- in the therapeutic relationship is also extremely difficult to research because you have to make it objectifiable and you can't do that, right? It's really hard to put to words some of these things. Now, there's general things, and there is research that has been done, especially re- recently. Jonathan Jonathan um, Schilder, he published an article really highlighting the efficacy for psychodynamic therapy, which is great. People forget it's also an evidence based practice, just like cognitive behavioral therapy and all the other ones that are pretty popular. But the other thing that happened was um, insurance companies. Insurance companies are the main payers for medical care in this country and mental health is considered mental health, behavioral health is considered medical, right? And so most therapists are dependent on insurance and patients are dependent on insurance to pay for their sessions and insurance is not interested in paying for a treatment that's going to last years and years and years, right? Insurance wants the treatment to be quick. They want it to work and they want it to be over. Right. And so insurance has really gotten its fingers, its claws, in my opinion, into therapy where you have to have huge treatment plans. Right. If you're taking insurance, you have to have these big treatment plans that justify the treatment and why you're doing what you're doing at every step of the way. I am not saying that I'm against treatment plans. I do treatment planning with my patients. But to the, the point, the level that they want, it just takes all the joy out of the work. So I think that's another big reason. Everybody knows that insurance companies and big pharma fund a lot of research, right? And so they like to fund the research that works for them. And that's the research you hear about. And if you dig around, you can find that there's a lot of other research out there.
1: Yeah, I don't think anybody that has used insurance would say that the system is structured perfectly.
0: Right, right. It's not really structured to give the best. It's not really structured for the
1: patients. Yeah. I think we could say that.
0: Yeah. I don't I don't, I don't really think they care. I mean, I think what, during COVID, I, I don't remember where I saw or read this, but insurance companies made like $30 billion that year, the year that like everybody is really struggling and people are losing their homes and their livelihoods, but insurance is doing fine.
1: Yeah. Not a shocker that they would cash in on that. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. Do they run into the same problem in terms of insurance with like CBT or is that modality they're a little more willing to work with?
0: Yeah, insurance generally loves CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, because it tends to be pretty structured, excuse me, pretty structured and short term, right? CBT is generally 10 to 12 sessions. Some of the best CBT therapists that I've known, because I am friends with some, I'm not just enemies with them, they they see patients for way longer and they even express, gosh, like it it really does take longer than 10 to 12 sessions. Um, but yeah, that tends to be a real favorite because it's like, let's identify the problem, right? It's all about symptom reduction, right? How do we get you feeling less depressed, less anxious, whatever? And it's not that those are bad goals, but they don't encapsulate in totality what's going on. It can be a really good place to start. absolutely.
1: Well, yeah, and I think that psychodynamic therapy, again, has that branding of talk
0: therapy, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. you're just
1: talking. And so I could see them being a little less lenient with that. So, well, yeah, talk to yourself in the mirror, you'll be fine.
0: Right. So in treatment plans for insurance companies, they want something like patient's goal is to um, process trauma. How are you going to do that? When will you know it's done, right? They want all this stuff that I'm like, I can't, like I was saying, I don't really have the whole map until the patient and I create that together. How could I possibly type that up and send that to you and then edit it every single time I have an p- appointment with this patient and you and you guys aren't even paying me that well anyways. Like it just doesn't, it's not worth my time. Sorry.
1: Especially for something like trauma. Right. How are you going to take that black and white approach of, okay, here's the boxes we're going to check and then they're going to be good Right. and send. I'm going to send that off to right. the insurance company. We'll,
0: will decrease episodes of flashbacks from occurring three times a week to one time a week by using da 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 It just becomes non-relational, right? There's really no relationship here anymore. It's almost non-human. It's like I'm fixing a machine versus being with a person.
1: Is it a challenge going from the practice of therapy into your personal relationships? Is there any carryover in that that mm. kind of comes back to bite you?
0: That's a hard shift.
1: i know well i was just thinking (laughs) moving from the the insurance companies but this idea of because you have this background in psychology and you have your doctorate and i mean that is so applicable just to life in Mm -hmm. general having Mm -hmm. that foundational understanding and i could see that being a great benefit going out into the world and maintaining relationships but i could also see it being a challenge where now every relationship is looked at through this focus yeah and where yeah. You have the background in that and you could utilize those tools. The person that you're dealing with might not. And I've noticed that just in conversations, which is a kind of a lower level topic, but you can be great at having a conversation and about really talking to someone and you having that skill. If you try to talk to someone who sucks it, having a real conversation, mm-hmm. it doesn't make a difference that you have that skill. The conversation still sucks mm-hmm. and you're not mm-hmm. getting anywhere mm-hmm. and it just that kind of friction in that.
0: Yeah. There's as much as I am grateful and glad that I chose to become a psychologist, it has involved in it. All change involves loss. And this involved a lot of loss. Um, one of those losses um, being my religion. I grew up um, pretty evangelical Christian. And in the process I stepped away from that. And that's a huge loss. And that's like a whole nother podcast. Um, but a familiar story. Lots of people have this story. And yeah, I, there's relationships that I had that I you said goodbye to because it was like, I'm just not this person anymore. And I do need to get... I, I navigated so many of my relationships before as like, what can I do for other people and not really getting a lot in return. And now I feel pretty comfortable with like, I want to be friends with people that I like, number one, but also that I feel like we have a reciprocal relationship, right? And that means that they have to be able to talk in the way I want to talk and do some of the things that I want to do, right? Um, But does it also, does the knowledge take a toll on my relationships in other ways? Yeah, the amount of like anxiety and mom guilt I struggled with after my daughter was born, right? Because it was like, I don't want to do anything to fuck this child up, right? Well, that's ridiculous. I'm not, I'm not going to get it perfectly, right? I know just enough to be dangerous in some ways. And it took me a long time to kind of step back from that and calm down. I think a lot of moms have this experience, right? You just have like, you want to do everything to protect this baby, moms and dads. And so there was a period of time in my relationship with my daughter where I had to manage my own anxiety and not put that onto her, right? Because she was fine, right? It was me that had the issue. I was afraid of something, And if my husband was here, he would probably laugh about how difficult it is being married to a psychologist that always wants to talk about the deeper things, right? Like sometimes he's like, come on, can it just be this thing? And I'm like, no, right? (laughs) We got to understand the underlying stuff. And also my demand that he change and grow with me, right? Because I I need that. I want you to change and grow with me. I want to be leveling up together right? I don't want to be leveling up alone because the job can be really lonely. It can, especially when you work in private practice and you don't have a lot of contact with other therapists. And so I do really need him to grow and change just like I'm growing and changing. And those things are hard, right? There's there's moments where it is very difficult, but for the most part, I don't regret it.
1: Yeah. The, the willingness to grow, I think, is another thing that some people struggle with is the idea... I think that there are people out there who are constantly chasing that uh, and you want to self-improve and you want to get better and you, you right. want to progress through life on that path. And I think there are those people who just don't see it in that same frame mm-hmm. where, oh no, I am I could just be like this for the next 50 years and I would be fine. Okay.
0: And that's okay. That's all right. If you know that and that's what you want, that's fine. Then it's up to me to decide if that's something I'm interested in. That's the hard part. That's the hard part, right? If If I'm in a relationship with somebody and I'm saying, I need this. And they're saying, I don't have any interest in giving you that. Okay, then stop trying to change that person. We've got to move on to, okay, let's talk about what this means for you. How are you going to grieve this? How are you going to be in this relationship knowing that you're not going to get all the things that you want? Is that okay, right? It, it, you just have to enter into a different space.
1: And yeah, just accept that if that's where it's going to be. I think people, especially in relationships, they fall into this path where they're not necessarily with the right person and they're trying to mold that person into what they want them to Mm -hmm. be, which never works out. That never happens. And then you're just hitting this constant wall of why can't you be this person? And Mm -hmm. They're like, I want to be who I am right now. Right. Right. And it just devolves into this toxic soup of two people hating each other who once loved each
0: other. Right. Right. Generally a reenactment of something that's familiar.
1: In terms of like a parental relationship.
0: Yeah. But I feel like that's a whole nother pocket. If you're going to get me into the like relationship world. That'll be part two. (laughs) Yeah. I
1: did want to ask, we don't have to go into specifics, but in terms of touching on the religion aspect, Mm. was that just out of pursuing higher education and just becoming more aware of the world?
0: That's a big question. It's a big question that I'm trying to decide if I'm ready to answer.
1: Yeah, you no pressure. That could be part two as well.
0: Yeah, I think. Yeah, I think I I think I would rather that be part two because it it would take I'd have to a shift gears. Yeah, to really think about and remember what it was like for me and to to decide if I feel comfortable talking yeah. about
1: it. I, it just caught me off guard because I would I've kind of fallen into that same place too. And I one of the things that I've talked about a few times on this podcast in relation to that is. I was brought up Catholic mm-hmm. from birth and went through the whole process. And now as an adult, especially someone who went through college and was kind of more trained to question things, yeah. a uh, troubling aspect in my life is figuring out how I feel about the religion versus what was just ingrained in me right. as a kid. And I feel right. like that's a wall that I constantly hit is I can't separate that. Right. I can't figure out because when you're a kid, you're so susceptible to information, especially if it's coming from your parents. Right. From these people who you perceive as
0: Authorities. authority Experts. figures? Yeah, you're going to the church Gods. and these
1: they're telling you these things. And yeah. if you do these things you're bad and if you do these things you're good. Right. And then heaven and hell that is just so huge to try to implement into a child's life right. and structure in that way.
0: So there can be this sense of like is it even possible for me to completely not believe? Yeah. Can I really Or how do you figure out what you yeah. really believe? Right. And I think there is I'm I don't have this completely formulated in my mind, but I think there are stages <laughs> when it comes to leaving religion and then reapproaching, right? Because in order to re-approach, we have to go through the period of being really pissed off, in my opinion, right? And sometimes that period can take a long time, right? Where people are really antagonistic towards any type of religion. Any mention of God can get them really sweating. I think that's an important part of the process, right? Especially when you didn't really get permission to be upset or doubt or come to your own conclusions, right? Be mad. Be mad for years, right? Do that. And then once anger has had its time, then there can be some openness to, you know, maybe I'll check out a Buddhist temple, right? Maybe Maybe I'll just go back to the Catholic Church, just see how mass feels, right? There's more of this open. It doesn't evoke this, like, angry, disgust feeling anymore. There's this well,
1: gut reaction.
0: Yeah, there's there's room for curiosity there.
1: Yeah, that seems like the standard path you have to go down is mm-hmm. you get out and then you almost have to hate it and then take that time to sit in that and mm-hmm. sit in the emotion of it and then you can say, okay, maybe it's time we reassess right? or maybe, just take another look at it.
0: Yeah, maybe not everything about that was all bad, like... Maybe I can see how spirituality is an important part of my life and who I am. And I want to kind of check that out. I want to give myself the opportunity to figure it out for myself. Yeah. But trying to do that before you've done all the mourning and grieving and weeping and gnashing of teeth, not going to work out.
1: And I feel like that's almost just representative of going through life in general. Is you have these things that you experience as a child And you almost can't face them at that time Mm because you're a kid and Mm -hmm. you don't know any better and you go through these things. And then as an adult, part of the challenge is just overcoming those behaviors and those ways that you had to adapt in order to get through life. Mm -hmm. And then now you're an adult. That's the common trope is, you know, the trauma that you experience as a child isn't an excuse to just be a dick for the rest of your life. You have to. Reach a point where you say, "Okay, I don't want to be this way anymore. I want to reassess this idea and work through this problem. I don't want it to just control me like it has in the past. I want to go through the next twenty years better than the last 20.
0: Right. I have some sense; it's meant to be more beautiful than this, right?
1: Yeah, you said that at the beginning. That was perfect.
0: What I tell people is not necessarily your trauma is an excuse for you to be a dick, but I say, "Yeah, what your trauma is not your fault. It's not your responsibility. The impact it's had on you is." because no one can deal with that but you, right? And you can choose or not choose, right? You can to deal with it or not. But let's talk about some reasons why you might want to, right? And, and so that distinction can feel really important because it is so unfair. It really, really is. Nobody should experience trauma. A lot of people will. It's just the nature of the universe we live in, unfortunately.
1: And it's easy be- to become jaded. As a result of that and then you that's when you really get into problems Is you start reacting to other people and forcing that on them mm-hmm. and then it's just this cycle of trauma where mm-hmm. hurt people hurt people and then right it just it's like a ripple going right. out and then i'm
0: in business forever
1: yeah <laughs>
0: forever
1: do you think that there, that if you were to extrapolate out the i guess state of mind of our society in some way do you think that we are progressing in a good direction? Not, I mean, if you were to take the lens of therapy, do you think that we're moving, we're progressing in a good direction where people are, I don't want to say getting healed, but getting better more so than they're getting worse?
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, you had me on the show to talk about psychodynamic theory. <laughs> and, <laughs> and then you want to like, all existential. what is the meaning of life? I mean, it's, I don't know that I can answer that question well. I, I can say that I am happy to see the stigma around mental health really start to decline, right? I think people from my generation and younger, we are into emotions and we're going to talk about it, whether you want to or not. And I I think that's a really great thing. Now with every big movement, you know, with an increase of awareness and knowledge, the pendulum is going to swing all the way to the extreme, right? And I think that's where we do see some of these things that are much more like catchphrase therapy or Instagram therapy and it's kind of missing the real um, difficulty of the work, right? And I, th- I think that that's just normal as a society. Do I think we're progressing towards good versus evil? I, I don't know. I don't think that I can answer that.
1: Yeah, that's kind of a. That's almost like if you were just betting. It's like, how do you place a bet on that? Because you're obviously biased. You want to say society's going in a good direction. We're gonna be okay. Sure.
0: But. I don't want to be like a a a terrible skeptic that's like yeah. no it's all going to shit the world's right? gonna blow up yeah but i also don't want to be the person that's like no it's getting so much better age of aquarius like what no, yeah i don't want to do that
1: either. the next enlightenment
0: yeah i don't want to do that either i think we're i think we're changing as a society and i don't know that you can say with certainty whether that's good or bad
1: especially being in it yes like we're hindsight's 20, 20 and right we just haven't separated ourselves from it enough to really understand the direction of it
0: yeah i think and that is bringing it back to psychodynamic therapy that's something we do too of like okay so this situation just happened and it was unpleasant (laughs) let's see if we can figure out what happened now right and and that's a really important part of life and i think that'll be an important part for society too all these things that are really big right now okay how are we going to feel about them and 10 20 30 40 years when we look back on this
1: and so new growth psychology yeah is that your practice
0: that's my practice this is yeah. your practice okay yep.
1: how did that start is that just a byproduct of you coming out here you're like yeah I'm gonna, i want to i recognize the need in the community i'm going to start this thing
0: No, I never thought I would be in private practice. Honestly, I was very intimidated by that. Nobody in my family ever owned a business. And I just I'd always just worked for somebody else. And I think a lot of people have that experience. Um, And I ended up out here because I worked for Open Door. So I worked as a psychologist for them and enjoyed that. But I Open Door has a short term model and that ended up being a not great fit for me. It took me a while to figure that out. And I kind of languished in that for a while, trying to figure that out and feeling really afraid of what, of leaving, right? You're going to leave a job that's got decent benefits, good organization, good people to work with, right? But why do I feel like I can't get out of bed in the morning, right? There's something going on here. So in my own therapy, figuring out, okay, I'm experiencing a soul death. I need to figure something out. I might not know what it looks like, but I'm pretty sure that I'm not interested in working for an organization anymore just because of the impact insurance has on the way you can work. I wanted to work in the way that I was trained to work. And then at that time, I was getting back into reading a lot about psychodynamic therapy, and I was like, that, that's what I want, right? And so I tried it. and it turns out I'm pretty good at it. Um, turns out that I learned a lot from being a server and a bartender about how to run a business, right? How to make money work and, how to do more of the like, um, you know, the interacting with people, things like that. I also enjoy um, some aspects of the marketing. I made my own website. I made my own business cards, things like that. And so it's been fun to also do some different, to play, so to speak, right? For so long, it was like, I do therapy. This is what I do. I went to school. I spent so much money to do this, right? And I, I did forget to play. So I've enjoyed the play of it. Um, and then I have hired... Two therapists. Um, I have an LMFT that works in the practice. And then I recently took on a postdoctoral graduate. So that's a person who's almost a psychologist but is working towards licensure. And I really enjoy supervising. I really enjoy having the opportunity to help new therapists come into their own as a therapist. And I learn a lot that way. I think that's one of the greatest ways to, to learn is by being a teacher. And so that's where I'm at. I'd really like to expand and grow. I want to serve this community. I'm passionate about Humboldt. I really love the people here. Growing up rural, my rural roots are very happy in this area. And I want to grow in a way that's sustainable. So I'm not hiring a bunch of therapists right out of the gate. I need to make sure that my therapists feel like they can do their job well and that they are being taken care of so that they can turn around and do great work. I don't ever want a patient who has seen me or a therapist in my practice to worry that their therapist isn't okay, right? I don't want that to be a thing. So that's kind of where I'm at.
1: That's exciting.
0: Yeah, it has been.
1: Do you make any distinction with like an LMFT or what is the other uh, licensed clinical social worker?
0: Yeah, LCSW, where Does, there's a LPC, licensed oh, professional counselor. Yeah.
1: Is there any distinction in? I guess, fit for therapy more broadly? Or they all have their role to play?
0: Mm -hmm. They all have their own. They all have different potential because they all have different levels of training. So psychologist, doctoral level, went to school four years for undergrad, four years for graduate school, internship, and then a year long postdoc. So two years of postdoctoral work and then licensure. By that point, I had seen a lot of patients been in a lot of classes, had a ton of supervision. LMFTs and LCSWs, LMFTs with a real, they also have a real focus on therapy. They do four years of undergrad, two years of a master's, and then a year internship. I believe those are still the requirements. They also have a decent amount of experience, not quite as much as a doctoral level person, but still a lot. There's a clinical focus, there's supervision, things like that. LCSWs, can be different because an LCSW can um, specialize in a lot of different things, right? Because social workers can do case management, right? Or they can do therapy. So I am friends with and know lots of LCSWs who are excellent therapists. And they are ex and I asked them about this. Well, what do you think was important? How did you become such a great therapist, right? And generally they say something about how they really identified that they wanted to do therapy. And when they identified that, they got advanced training, or they got into supervision, things like that. Um, it's not the same for every LCSW. Not, and people need to know that not every program trains people the same. But this, these are kind of generalities. Um, so they they each have different potential. Psychologists re- generally receive a lot of training in assessment, so assessment for uh, neurobiological disorders, ADHD, autism, things like that. Um, that doesn't mean every psychologist is doing, I don't do that. Assessments are very, assessment tools are very expensive. I don't necessarily enjoy assessment writing. It's very tedious, very boring. I want to do therapy. That's what I want to do.
1: Okay. Well, Jessica, I really appreciated this conversation. Thank you for coming on and talking with me. Thanks for having me. Do you want to plug where people can buy new growth psychology, all of your stuff?
0: Sure. I could do that. Um, so you can find me at www.newgrowthpsychology.com. Um, you can email info at newgrowthpsychology.com and you can call at 707 677 My name is Jess.
1: Okay. Well, this was great. We'll do it again. Okay. Thanks.